If you haven't already, would you please open your Bibles to John chapter 17? And again, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find John 17 on page 587. This prayer that we're reading through is recorded by John. Jesus is praying. It's 26 verses long. You could divide it into three parts. The first five verses, Jesus is praying for himself. Then in verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus is praying for future believers. And so today, since we're looking at verses 20 through 26, we'll look at the conclusion of his prayer. And we'll look at his prayer for believers and future believers. Let me give you my basic outline, and then I'll pray. The basic outline is, number one, what is Jesus praying for? And that'll take up most of our time. What is Jesus praying for? Number two, why is Jesus praying for that? And third, how is it made possible? So those are the Three headings, if you will, for this sermon. What is Jesus praying for? Why is he praying that? And how is that going to be possible? So before I preach this sermon, though, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And thank you for the Holy Spirit so that we could each have the opportunity now to read your word and hear your word and study your word and then understand your word and then be changed by your word and worship you and give you more love and give you more devotion and give you more praise, all things that you deserve more of from us so God, use your word to make us love you more this morning so that we give you more of what you deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So in verse 20, Jesus says that he is praying for these, and those are his disciples, those 11 men that, are, that have been with him and are with him right now as he's praying, but not, he says in verse 20, these only, but also for future believers, or in his words, look at verse 20, those who will believe in me. And how will they come to believe in Jesus? He says, through their word. So Jesus has already talked about this to the disciples. I've given you my word, and now you're going to take my word, and you're going to bear witness about me. You're going to tell people about me. You're going to tell people the good news of the gospel. And when you do that, more people... Not just you, 11 men, more people are going to believe in your generation and in following generations. There's going to be more people who will 
believe in me through your word. Now, what's amazing about that is that if you're here today and you're a Christian, that is how you became a Christian. It was because those 11 men did what Jesus said they were going to do, and they went and they spread these words of Jesus. They spread that good news, and then those people spread that good news, and then those people spread that good news, and neighbors told neighbors, and parents told children, and children told parents, and brothers told sisters, and co-workers told co-workers, until all the way down the line, nearly 2,000 years later, it's still happening. That's amazing. So what does Jesus pray for all of us? That's what's great in verse 20. We now get to include very clearly all of us who have believed in Him in this prayer of Jesus. So what does he pray for us? He does not take long to say it. Here it is in verse 21. That they may all be one. That they. Who's they? Believers. Them. You, if you're a believer. Me. That they, believers. And what's his prayer? May all be one. So, many believers, but may they all be one. You know what that means. When a husband and wife say, we are one. When a basketball team says, we are one. When a nation says we are one. You know what they mean. Unity. We are joined together. Let's keep reading. Because we want to know what kind of oneness is Jesus talking about? What kind of unity is he talking about? What degree of unity? So there's some elaboration in verses 21 through 23. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So we just learned more about what this unity looks like. What degree of unity Jesus is talking about. So look at a couple words in verse 21. Do you see those words, just as? And then look down in verse 22. Do you see those two words, even as? She says, I'm praying that you be one. Just as, even as, those two words in the original Greek are one word, and it's the same word used in both verses, and that word means to the degree that, or like. It's a comparison. So just as, 
even as means like. Be one like this. Or be one to the degree that they are one. So think of that now as we read these. What kind of unity are we talking about? Or how united, Christians, how united does Jesus want us to be? And the answer, how united does Jesus want you and I as Christians to be, is He wants us to be as united as God the Father and God the Son are. That's the standard. That's a very high standard. Even as, be one, even as me and the Father are one. Just as me and the Father are one. To the degree that Jesus is speaking. I am united to my Father. To the degree that my Father is united to me. The way we are one. That's how you all need to be one. And how united, just think about this for a minute, how united are God the Father and God the Son? I mean, how, how united are God the Father and God the Son? I, well, they are so united that Jesus, in, earlier in this book, in John 10, 30, said, I and the Father are one. They are so united that, you remember in John 14, Philip comes to Jesus, and Philip says, Jesus, you're great. Don't get me wrong, Jesus, you're great. But what we could really use, I mean, these are some tough words you have. What we could really use is to see the Father. Like Jesus was junior varsity. And what you want us to do is great, and you're great, Jesus, but what we could really use here is to see the Father. And do you remember Jesus' response to him in John 14, 11? He said, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. His point to Philip is, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the kind of unity that is between God the Father and God the Son. So, so here's what we're learning so far. Our unity Christians, our unity, our oneness is supposed to mirror the oneness or the unity between God the Father and God the Son. That's the model. And now, think back. Doesn't that make sense of why Jesus, throughout his time with his disciples, as recorded here by John, he has talked so much in this book about oneness with the Father. Think back and remember that, or read back through it. John brings this up all the time. Jesus is always talking about how he and the Father are one, and he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. And Part of the reason that Jesus has been explaining that oneness that he has with God the Father is because at the end of his earthly life, he was going to pray in front of these men, you're to be one like that. You're to be united like I and the Father are united. 
So that's a unity that Jesus is praying for us. Now, one more thing before we talk about what that unity looks like, which we'll, we'll spend some time on. Before we get into what this unity that Jesus is talking about practically looks at, like, what about why? Why is this unity so important? Why is it important for us to be one like this? Why is Jesus at the end of his life praying for unity? Or let me ask it this way, and then we'll read the verses, and you see if you can answer this question. According to these verses, 21 through 23, what is the purpose of this oneness, this unity? And see if you can hear it. We'll just read the verses. What is the purpose, according to these verses, of this oneness, this unity that Christians are supposed to have? Verse 21. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, I did my best there to do the thing that I don't often do and, and like emphasize the answer when I'm reading it. I, I tried to read that as, about as monotone as I could. And I'm wondering if you just in hearing that, that you could hear, according to Jesus, what the ultimate purpose there is for the oneness and unity of believers. And if you heard it, that's really good news. That means you are learning how to read your Bible and how to understand your Bible and how to hear what it's actually saying. The purpose of this unity is that the world would believe and know that God the Father sent Jesus. And you heard that twice in verse 21. It's all so that. And then you heard it again in verse 23. It's all so that. And both times, so that the world may know something. What does Jesus want the world to know? That God the Father sent Jesus. Friends, it is so important that the world comes to believe that God the Father sent Jesus. You say, well, that's not the most important thing. And what about other important things? And what about the gospel? Well, you see, that's, that's the... The first domino to fall is Jesus is from God. Jesus is God. Therefore, I listen to Jesus. That's why that's so important. So the purpose is that this unity would lead to the world, people in rebellion against God, believing and knowing that God the Father sent Jesus. If you believe that Jesus came from God, it changes everything. So if we are united, if Christians are united the way we're supposed to be united, if we are one the way we are supposed to be one, what we're hearing is that the world will come to know and believe that Jesus is 
God. So the, the way that works is that the unity that Christians should have, the oneness that Christians should have is so great, remember how great it's supposed to be, that when it happens, it can only be supernaturally explained. That's, that's, that's what that means. There's just no other explanation for it. That's how miraculous that kind of unity is. One commentator said, the result of this will be, this unity, that the world will see and know that this kind of human community, united across all traditional barriers of race, custom, gender, or class, can only come from the action of the Creator God, so that the world may believe. So we're too into our outline. What is Jesus praying for? He's praying for unity. Why is he praying for unity? What is the purpose of that unity? So that the world may come to know that Jesus was sent from God. But it's going to be a bit before we move on to the third. We need to go back and and talk more, I think, about, about this unity and this oneness. So let's slow down and talk about unity. Jesus is praying that that we, the church, Christians everywhere, and of course, a church, Christians in this room who are part of this church, he's praying that we would be one. What does that look like? And let's be as practical as we can be. It is obviously more than a superficial unity. It has to be more than a superficial unity. Now we can be tempted to a superficial unity. Because we know we're supposed to be in unity. If we know we're supposed to be something, then we can be tempted to project that we are that at least. Even if we're Not that. And you've probably been a part of this. We we could do that by taking a picture of all of us after service today. We're united. Let's take a let's all get together for a picture. And you you have to smile because we all love each other so much. And we're all so happy. And the picture can't all be white. So anybody who's part of our church that's not white, we need to put you in the front, right, or spread you out in the picture, because we're diverse, and yet we're united. And then all of us, we all lock arms. Oh, we got too many Filipino members together. Got too many African American members together. They spread it out. And then let's lock arms. Let's lock arms. And let's smile on three. Let's put it on the website, on the front page, and above it, it'll say community. But C O M M will be lowercase, and then unity will be all caps. <laughs> you, you feeling this? 
And there we go. We are on our way. So at least people will know. I remember when, when churches first started doing websites, and you could, go to these, you could go to these other websites where you could download clip art. And you'd say what page you're working on, and we'd give you the clip art. And there's always this picture of a very diverse group of people who are locked arms, smiling. And they don't even go to your church, right? It's clip art. And then you put it on the front of your website. So it's like, we know we're supposed to be united. We know we're supposed to be in community. So let's get the picture. Let's put it on the website. You understand the point. That's superficial. That's not what Jesus is talking about. So what is this unity? What is this oneness? First of all, this oneness that Jesus is praying for has already happened in part. So there's an already not yet thing here. This oneness, this unity, this prayer has already been answered in part. Christians have already been united. Christians have already been adopted into one family with one father. We are united. Christians know this. We are united, we might say, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We say that the blood of Jesus was shed. Jesus was killed. And he was killed in the place of sinners like you and me. So that my horrible sin could be punished and paid for by him. So that I could now be forgiven and adopted into God's family. And so we have all been united to God. We have been united to Jesus. And so therefore we are all united to one another. Let me give you four verses that tell us this oneness in part has already happened. We're already united. John 10, 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So Christians everywhere, anywhere, is one flock, one common shepherd, Jesus. Romans 12, 4 and 5 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Galatians three twenty eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And finally, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, that's clear, isn't it? This oneness, in a sense, is a reality. As Christians, we are one. We have one Father. We have one Lord. Think about this. We have one Spirit. It's not a different Holy Spirit that resides in you, then resides in me. One Holy Spirit residing in all of us as Christians at the same time. That's unity. We have one shared hope, one shared purpose. 
but we're not yet perfect. We don't, we don't always act like what we are. And that's why Jesus, part of his prayer in verse 23 is that they may become perfectly one. So think of it this way. We need to become a more perfect version of what we already are. So we are united. We are one. And we need to become more united. It's just already not yet. We are holy, and yet we need to be more holy. We have been sanctified, and yet we need to be sanctified. So united is what we are, and it's what we must be. Okay. So let's move on practically. We could obviously do an entire sermon series on unity. We could spend a lot of time on this, but let me take you through a key, few key verses, nine verses or nine texts. Let me take you through nine verses, pointing out very little, trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to push you the way you need to be pushed. So I'm not going to say a bunch after these verses. I'm going to read them sort of slow, say a couple things, and then just let it sit. I think it will be clear to you. And I pray the Holy Spirit makes clear to you where work needs to be done. How you need to grow in this. How I need to grow in this. So I'll start with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And I would encourage you as I read these to think especially about your church family. If this is your church family, then think about this church family. This unity, this oneness, this love, it needs to happen in your family, it needs to happen on your street, it needs to happen with Christians who aren't members of your church, but think about, so you have a context for this, think about your church family, whether it's here or somewhere else, think about those people. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And why would we do that? We are, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So because we're eager for this unity, what does Paul say we're striving for? I must be humble. I must be gentle. I must be patient. I must be bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another. How? In love. Jeremiah chapter 32 Verse 38 and 39. This is a prophecy, and there's debate as to when this prophecy 
will be fulfilled and how fulfilled it has been now, fulfilled at this point, but I would say it's certainly at least in part been fulfilled by now. Jeremiah 32, 38, and 39, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. We should have one heart and one way. And I think we see that begin to happen in the book of Acts. One heart, one way. Let me read two passages from Acts in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. What do we learn practically about this unity? Acts 2:44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then two chapters later in Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And so what did that look like? And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Think about that. And no one, because they were of one heart and one soul, that's what Jeremiah 32 talked about. They were of one heart and one soul. And so the fruit of that was no one, think about this practically, said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That does not come naturally. I don't know how, those of you had kids, how long it was before they learned the word mine. But my kids learned it very quickly. I, they might have learned it from me. That's my office, that's my chair, that's my Bible, that's my seat, the head of the table, that's my spot on the couch, that's my this and, and my that. This doesn't come naturally, especially when there are things that you've worked for and there's things that you've earned. But it seems to me, I take this to mean in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, I take this to mean that among them there was no one in need. Among them there was no one in need. So there should be no one among us in need. That should be impossible in a church. Isn't that great? That should be impossible. Now, if you're not 
This also, when you start talking about this, it really helps us to understand why being committed to a church is very important because practically you just won't be able to do the things that God tells you to do if you're not. You certainly won't have this benefit. So it doesn't mean if you're just floating around and you're not committed to any people that you just can show up at a church and say, I'm a Christian and I'm in need, that should be impossible, help me. It's not exactly how it works. But it at least means this, right? It at least means those of you who are committed to this church, maybe and especially those of you who are members of this church, it should be impossible for you to be in physical need of anything. The only way that's going to happen is if you hide. That's the only way. But we are not united and we're not one if we know that among us there is someone who is in need. That word's important. Who is in need and we're not doing something about it. So nothing ultimately belongs to just me. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. There's a lot in these two verses about unity. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. <gasps> yeah, right. Heresy. No way it says that. Agree to disagree? I love that phrase. We won't have time to think deeply about this, but listen, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and here's the key, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So this is really important because one quick way to this oneness and this unity is to just stop caring about what the Bible says. And the New Testament is very clear that part of the unity that we're supposed to be be having here, and there's verse after verse, is a unity in mind. And so we do, we talk, and we debate, and we open up God's Word, and we work hard at figuring out what does the Word of God say about this or about that, and we're not always on the same page. Very often, we're not on the same page, and we're graciously, lovingly fighting to get on the same page, always. Because we want to know what the Bible says. So the way to unity and oneness is not, well, let's figure out the lowest possible common denominators and unite on that. That's not it. It's let's bring our differences and our disagreements to the table and let's love one another across those differences. And that's where we start to stink at it. Can we, can we talk about these things and disagree about these things as long as they're not gospel things and not have division? Some of you who can't do that, you need to stop debating. 
And you need to stop airing your opinions. And you need to stop posting them on Facebook. If not, at the end of the day, you're not able, if you're, not, if you're, if you're weak here, and you might just be weak here, if you're not strong or mature enough yet to lovingly, lovingly discuss and engage one another on secondary matters, then you should cover your mouth and wait and grow in that so that you can be helpful for the body of Christ and not unhelpful. Now, I hope those of you who know me, you know I'm a theology guy. I'm a doctrine guy. I want to get these things right, and I work hard at getting these things right. But we've got to be so careful how we do this. There's more on that in a few minutes, but verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So that's something else that should not be found among us if we're united and if we are one, and that is quarreling or fighting or unresolved conflict. Does this mean there will not be conflict among us? It does not mean that. There will be conflict among us. Probably a lot of conflict. But will it resolve? It has to resolve. Matthew 5, Matthew 18. If you're offended, you go to the brother. If you know your brother's offended with you, you go to the brother. It's covering all the bases, all the bases, so that unresolved conflict does not exist. Are there people, even in this church, you have unresolved conflict with? It's not, if we're to be one and united the way Christ wants us to be, it's not acceptable. So we've got to reach out. We've got to do everything we can. Eager, eager, the word says, to maintain this unity. A couple more. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 through 26. That there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So in a church, there should be no lonely sufferers. And there should be no lonely rejoicers. So we, 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 carry, we carry our church in our heart. And we carry, John Calvin said, their joys and their maladies in our heart. We want to grow in this. That when I read this post or hear this prayer request or talk with this person and I hear about what they're going through, that, that I, I actually feel something. And if they're sad, that I'm sad. If they're in pain, that I'm in pain. And then I go over and talk to this brother or this sister, and they're so excited about what's happening, and, and I'm so excited because of what's happening with them. But we end up being this very, very emotional people. 
And a very emotionally knit people, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. When one suffers, we all suffer. When one is honored, we're all honored. When one rejoices, we're all rejoicing. We're sharing these things with one another because we carry one another in our hearts. So we have to know one another. We have to talk to one another. We have to pray for one another. We have to think about one another throughout the week. We have to look forward to seeing one another on Sunday. There's so much to that. Let me just rattle through two more places that have a common theme, and then we'll move on. Philippians 2, 1 through 5. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Colossians 3, starting in verse 11. Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love, love, love. We can't talk about oneness or unity without love. It could summarize everything that we've looked at so far practically. Love. What did Jesus say in John 13? This is how they will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. That's what he's praying for here. Oneness and unity. How should we love one another? Do we remember the standard? The way the Father loves the Son. The way the Son loves the Father. Unconditionally. Unconditionally. Love. I think that, or I'm prepared to say, that a church that has less light, by light I mean theology, knowledge, doctrine, all things we value here. But I'd be prepared to say that a church that has less light and more love is more pleasing to God than a church that has more light and less love. Love, love, love. The scriptures are saturated with this call. Jesus, would you boil down the commandments for us? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If there's anything a Christian is to be characterized by, it is love, not knowledge. The knowledge is only to help you love. 
makes you love God more. And it makes you love others more. So if, if reading your books and, 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 and studying your, which you know I'm an advocate of, but if you find that that's not leading you to love God more and love others more, friend, something's wrong. Something's missing. You should be warming up, not cooling down. So practically speaking, the New Testament helps us to understand what Jesus is talking about. This unity that we have, this oneness that we are to have that is characterized by our love and affection for one another. So finally, the third question in this sermon, how is that unity possible? Sounds like a pipe dream, right? Just this thing that's out there that we'll just nod our heads and dream about that, but how is that possible? Or another way to ask that question, where will this love come from? And so that's verses 24 through 26, which is, I would say, the ground of his request in verses 20 through 23. Okay, here's how it's possible for us to love one another this way, to be united in that way. Verses 24 through 26. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You're going to hear love a lot in here. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So let me summarize in one sentence this part of Jesus' prayer. Father, I want them, and that's them, that's you, that's me, Christians. Father, I want them to see and know that you love them as much as you love me. Let me show you where I see that. But that'd be my summary of this part of the prayer. Father, I want them to see and know that you love them, believers, as much as you love me. Verse 24. Do you hear that in verse 24? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That's amazing that Jesus loves you that much. Doesn't want to be separated from you. I desire that they may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So he wants us to see how much the Father loves the Son. It's the first part. Verse 24. Father, I want them to know how much you love me. Verse 25 now. 
O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, why? That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There it is. Jesus wants us to know that the Father loves us as much as he loves Jesus. I don't know if you've heard that before or if it it even sounds right to you. And it's true. We glazed over it, but Jesus said it even more more clearly in verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and what else will the world know and loved them, that's believers, even as you loved me. Now you remember the other two places those words showed up, even as? Same word again. Remember what it means? To the degree that. To the degree that. So put that in at the end of verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved, loved them to the degree that you loved me. So how is this unity possible? Where will this love that we're supposed to have for one another come from? Well, your capacity and your ability to love others will be in proportion to your understanding of God's love for you. That's how this prayer comes together. So you will be able to love others to the degree that you understand how much God loves you. The more you understand how much God loves you, the more you will love others. I, I think if I'm not loving somebody, it's their problem. I don't love you because you're not lovable. That's the problem. If you were more lovable, I'd love you. I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. And I love people. But I don't really love you because you're not lovable. Irritating and annoying and don't understand theology and go to a weird church and listen to strange music and always having problems and just, I don't like that. I don't love you. That's the problem. And so you surround yourself with lovable people. That's their family, and then you know, it's like, I have to love them. 
the problem is not them. I need to confront myself with that when I'm feeling that way. The problem is me. And what is the key to loving them? It's slowing down and it's recognizing that I do not understand how much God the Father loves me. Now, if I understood how much God the Father loved me, I would be free to love with everything that I have. Do you know why? Because I'm not trying to get anything from you. I don't need anything from you. I'm not making an investment and looking for a return. I can love you, love you, love you. And you can hate me, or you can be unkind to me, or you can bother me, and it doesn't matter because I'm not trying to secure something from you. Do you see how freeing that is? I'm just free to sacrificially lay down my life and love you. Why? Because I have everything I need in Jesus. He has loved me, and he's all that I need. That's where that comes from. Isn't that the argument in Scripture of how even the wife of an unloving husband can glorify God and honor God by still loving him and by still respecting him? And how is she able to do that? Because that husband is great? No. Because God is great. And so it becomes a beautiful thing and a testimony of how great God is. How great must that wife's God be that she can love that guy? Which is true for all of our wives, by the way. Your wife better love God, or you're in trouble. Know that you are loved, and then love. That's how this works. So in conclusion, let me just summarize. What is Jesus praying for? Jesus is praying for the unity of his people. Why is Jesus praying for this? Jesus is praying for the unity of his people so that the world would believe. And how is this unity made possible? Well, the basis for our unity is the Father's love for us. Is the love of the Father for you, Christian, sinking in so that you're free and able to love others. And if there's a shortness in your love for others, then let the love of God the Father sink in. And think about this. Meditate on this. Read books about it. Memorize scripture that talks about it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the words that you've given us. God, we're intimidated by the high calling that you've put before us to be united and to be one and to love one another with 
the model being the love you have for your son and your son has for you. That's intimidating, God, and it doesn't sound possible most of the time. But thank you for these words that we have today. Thank you, Jesus, for praying for us. Thank you for uniting us together. Thank you for promising to make us more united. And thank you for helping us today to understand what we can do and what our part is. Help us to understand more fully the love that you have for us. And God, as we understand how much you love us, may we become a less irritable people. May we become a less grudged people, a less angry people, and a more humble people, a more gentle people, a more patient people, endlessly overlooking offenses, knowing how great our offense has been to you and how much greater your forgiveness has been to us. So we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.